George Washington, writing in a letter to John Rogers in 1783, said, Patience is a noble virtue, and when rightly exercised, does not fail of its reward. George Washington was known for many things as he courageously led our country towards freedom, but surprisingly, patience was not always one of his strongest traits. George could be very impulsive. He was, as one historian has remarked, by natural disposition, inclined to be fiery and temperamental. It can, it can be easy to see the stalwart restraint of her first commander only to overlook the powerful, unrevealed forces lurking just beneath the surface calm. It has been written of him that Washington's fiery temperament were well known to any student of his life. His reckless actions could lead to disaster. One author wrote an unflattering portrait of him, saying, although in moments of reflection on his inadequacies, in action he could be rash, brash, imprudent, and over-self-confident. He made dreadful mistakes. During this same time period of Washington's life, another historian concluded that there is something unlikable about George Washington from the ages of 21 to 26. He seems a trifle raw and strident, too much on his dignity, too ready to complain, too nakedly concerned with promotion. This young Washington could come across as pushy and uncivil, altogether too hungry for honor and promotion in his life. He had yet to learn, as one biographer noted, the wisdom of patience, or rather he was learning it in a painful school. Well, George Washington would eventually graduate from this painful school of suffering trials, and he could say with confidence of what he said earlier in that letter to John Rogers, patience is a noble virtue, and when rightly exercised, does not fail of its reward. Washington would learn patience by living with other humans and by the many trials that God brought into his life. Friends, we live in a culture that has been consumed with everything wanting it now, where we could, four weeks ago, walk into any store and it would feed and satisfy our instant gratification. We loved our luxuries, our pleasures, our niceties, and we wanted them now. The old virtue of delayed gratification had been replaced by instant indulgence, but no more. That was stripped away from us weeks ago. The entire world was thrusted into a situation that no one wanted, and we're told to wait. And we've done that perfectly, right? We've, we've, we've loved waiting, haven't we? Now, be honest. You know, this last uh, month, we've been looking at each uh, of the fruit of the Spirit while we're in exile. And this morning, we come to the fruit that seems to be impossible to cultivate on our own. We've looked at love and joy, and Ryan led us in the study on peace, and those almost seem heavenly, even a higher league than this one. See, patience seems unattainable for us. I mean, everyone on earth gets impatient, so why does Paul list this as a fruit of the Spirit? Well, I wonder if, if we take it out, the rest of the fruit fall apart. I mean, can we really be loving if we're not patient? Can we have self-control if we lack patience? I don't think it's the main fruit, 
but it sure is one of the roots that connects them all. And so we're going to walk through a passage here this morning, James 5, and look at two main points, impatience with God and impatience with others. So follow with me as I read James 5. If you have a Bible, turn with me and, and, and follow with me, James chapter 5, and we'll look at verses one, uh, 7 through 11. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You will also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the first thing I want you to see here in this passage is our impatience with God. The word patient in the Bible, uh, here in the Greek, word is makrothumos. Makro, you should know, meaning large or long, and the word thumos means anger. Now, I don't want to walk down this path too far. There are a couple words, but two primarily in the Bible for the word for, word, for anger, the Greek word, and they are thumos and orge. Orge can be translated as wrath, and it means a settled opposition to someone, whereas thumos here means an emotional blaze, a, a flare-up. And so the word for patient here is makrothumos, and it means a long blaze, or it takes a long time, or a long fuse. It takes a while for you to flare up. It takes a, a long time before you lash out. And understanding this word for patience is key to understanding this passage and ultimately what the fruit of the Spirit is, patience. Patience means living with delayed gratification. It means to suffer a long time, it, to take it without lashing out. When you're in pressure, when, when there's pressing from either side, the outside and inside, or, or something needs to happen, and, and there's the temptation then to lash out. And when you lash out, you've run out of patience. And we all lash out in different ways, depending upon the situation and the person that we're dealing with. But when we talk about our impatience with God, there, there are really only two ways that I see that we lash out against Him, either with our mouth or with our heart. And just to make you feel uncomfortable, we all do this. So don't check out. I know that you have your smartphone right next to you as you sit on the couch in your pajamas, so don't check out. Stay with me here, because you and I need this message this morning. This, this message is most definitely for each and every one of us, because we all lash out against God, either in our words and most definitely in our heart. And how do we lose patience with God? Uh, we begin to gripe and complain. We, we bark to God that his ways, his timing, his provision isn't right. It isn't what we truly need right now. And we strike against God either in our words, but most definitely in our hearts. When, when things don't go the way that we think it should go, we take matters into our own hands. We, we say things, if you're a student in class, and say, well, I'm not going to pass this class anyways. It's a hard subject, so I'm just going to cheat. 
the teacher is, is unreasonable, so, so I'm going to get out of this quickly. Or, or even for those that really want to be married, you, you, you think, God hasn't brought a spouse to me in my time now, so I'm going to go find one that I want. It doesn't matter if, if they're a Christian even or if they love the Lord. We can worry about that later. I just want to get married God knows that about me, and he hasn't supplied, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And you lash out. A patient person grows in delaying gratification and doesn't seek to strike back to God with either their tongue or their heart or their will, but is willing, submitting to God's schedule even when it really hurts. And the picture that James gives us to to teach us this morning about patience is that of a farmer. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Douglas Moo writes about this passage. He says, The farmer who prepares a field sows seed and then waits for a crop is a very natural illustration of patience. He can do very little to affect the outcome, but must wait and pray for the right rain at the right time. In Palestine, the farmer was particularly dependent on the rain that came in late autumn and early spring. And why is the farmer able to wait? He knows that waiting is not useless or in vain. As the waiting happens, he he understands that a radical change is taking place, even though he can't see it that the seed is growing, and it's growing all kinds of shoots. And when those shoots grow longer and larger, they grow towards the topsoil, and those shoots will finally make themselves seen and then turn into a plant, and that will grow blossoms, and those blossoms will either then grow up fruit. And there's a clear reason for the waiting in regards to the farmer. He knows there's, there's things going on under the soil. And if the farmer could not hope for the rains, all of the plowing and planting and weeding would, would all be useless. But there's a strong temptation for the farmer also. He could convince himself that the rain isn't going to come. And he has to remind himself that he's not the instrument of change. It's the early and late rain. He cannot boast. He has to trust the Lord for the rain to bring the harvest. And he could, he could try to manipulate things to get it going. He could work around God. I mean, these rains are never going to come. At least they're not going to come when I need them to, he says. So I'm, I'm going to manufacture water in some way. Or perhaps I'll, I'll just go and gather what I have. I mean, after we'll gather it, it'll, it'll be a fraction of what I could have got. But at least I'll have something. And don't you see how this applies to us today? How many of us are doing this every single day and week? And, and God has us right where he wants us to, to grow us in patience. And he wants us to trust him in all things. Friends, are you wasting this time right now? Are you so fixated to get more things done, to keep going, to keep moving And when God has shown you, when he's literally shown the entire world that you need to stop striving, stop working to find your peace and rest in him. And you don't like waiting. You have to do something in the process. You're not the farmer. You're a fool who doesn't understand God. I was reading this week earlier, some earlier study material, 
and came across a quote from Spurgeon when I was studying and preaching through the book of 2 Timothy last year. And at the end of the second letter, when he asked for Timothy to bring the scrolls, this is what Spurgeon writes. Paul herein is a picture of industry. He's in prison. He, he cannot preach. What will he do? As he cannot preach, he will read. As we read of the fishermen of old and their boats, the fishermen were gone out of them. What were they doing? They're mending their nets. So if providence, this is key, friends. So if providence has laid you upon a sickbed or you cannot teach your class, if you cannot be working for God in public, mend your nets by reading. If one occupation is taken from you, take another and let the books of the apostle read you a lesson of industry. See, when all of that was stripped away from Paul and his life, what did he want? He wanted the scrolls to read. He wanted to study his God. It's that, is that what we have done with this extra time that we've been given? When we're stretched and pressed? See, God is doing wonderful things in our hearts and lives when we're waiting. There will be rain. There will be a harvest of righteousness. But we need to stay put. We need to lean into God right now. Some mighty, beautiful things are growing inside of you. Patience is growing inside of you, and it's gorgeous, friends. Patience is a beautiful thing in the life of a Christian. And when you see a patient person, you know that you've seen something rare in this world. Because that person didn't naturally come into the world that way. No, God grew them. Patience is the sort of thing that can only grow if you stay put and if you refuse to lash out. If we stay put and wait for the harvest... Friends, we'll be better for it. If you're tempted to go out and gather the harvest before God brings the rain, thinking that you're just going to cut your losses, thinking it's better than nothing, you're wrong, friend. It's not better than nothing. It's worse. Because when you move ahead of God, you might get some of the harvest, but you don't get God. You don't have the blessing God gives. You don't have His promise. Because if you wait for the rain to come, if you wait for God to supply, the rains will come and you get God and that, and that he far outweighs the harvest. And so James emphasizes again here in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. He means stand firm. And what's your heart here? The heart is your directional system. The heart is your steering wheel for all of your life. Your behavior isn't caused by situations and relationships that are outside of you. No, friends, your biggest problem is inside of you. And so if our heart is the steering wheel of our behavior, then we'd better be about the business of knowing and strengthening our hearts to obey God. And when James writes to strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near, he's being very pastoral to us. To be aware of our hearts, because and waiting, it exposes our hearts to what's truly going on inside. Waiting exposes the doubts that linger inside of our hearts. I want to remind you of a story in 1 Samuel. I love that book. I loved preaching through 1 Samuel. There's one story in particular in chapter 13 where Saul had been in leadership just for a few years at this point. And he'd been sent out to defeat the garrison of the Philistines. And he wins, right? Easy breezy. He takes him out. And now comes the time for him to, to offer the, 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 uh, the offering. But Samuel's the one to do that. And where's Samuel? He's nowhere to be found. First Samuel 13, 8. He, Saul, 
waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, from Saul. I mean, Saul was the king. He, he's the man, right? He's the one everyone looked up to. He was the one that everyone wanted, and Samuel's just a prophet. And why wasn't Samuel coming when he was supposed to? I mean, he waited the time long enough, right? The time had, had come and expired, and, and Saul's got a kingdom to run. You know, he's got to get things moving, uh, and people are beginning to leave. So what does he do? He offers the sacrifice himself. It says there in verses 10 through 12, as soon as he finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul, here, fearful of losing the people, losing the prestige, losing the honor, lashes out against God. And goes ahead and offers a sacrifice. And there's serious consequences. It says in verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, for Saul, he believed the end justifies the means. And Samuel says, nope, disobedience is never justified. You needed to wait. Do you see how crucial patience is for our lives? For Saul, his kingdom is ripped from him. In that moment, in, in, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul lost everything. And Saul lost that day because of his impatience. This is how serious this is and how serious God takes this. And everything in that book, in 1 Samuel, everything in that book hinges on that moment when Saul couldn't wait any longer and he does the sacrifice himself. Little things lead to big things. And Saul couldn't bear the thought of losing prestige, so he cuts corners. He moved ahead of God and wanted to sacrifice for himself. And in so doing, he lost it all. Everything. Kingdom, honor, position, eventually his life. This is cosmic treason against God. It's setting yourself up Maybe not throwing, overthrowing the entire universe because we can't do that, but we're just going to overthrow just this one corner that we can have some, some say in. This is what impatience is with God. It's a serious thing. Now we know also that impatience with God will grow, and we see it more clearly when we see impatience with others. And so that's my second point, impatience with others. Friends, you... If you've learned to be patient with God, you will eventually show patience with others. Your patience with people who live with and around you is dependent upon your patience with God. Because it's, it's people who basically are the way in which God is showing you what his schedule for your life should be. 
God shows you yourself by giving you people to live with you. James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, grumbling here is a result of impatience. And what James tells us in this verse is that God's judgment will fall on those who grumble against him. Because all grumbling towards people is ultimately against God himself. And what's grumbling? Well, when people are frustrating, when they're disappointing, when they're disillusioning us, when, when they're complicating things, we, we respond. And, and we grumble towards them. Grumbling is a response you sometimes do outwardly, but in many cases you do it inwardly. It's usually a private sin. Grumbling is responding to people who disappoint you or frustrate you. And it's with resentment and negativity and cynicism. And ultimately, it's a lack of long-suffering. Why is grumbling a lack of long-suffering? Why is it a lack of patience? Because you've given up on that person. Instead of continuing to love them and to pull for them and to care for them, even when they frustrate you to the extreme, you give up on them and you write them off. You stop pulling for them. And you sinfully respond to them by grumbling about them, either to them face-to-face or privately or to someone else through gossip. And friends, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then every moment of grumbling towards other people is grumbling against the plan of God. God chose to put that person in your life. Do you believe that? Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? See, our grumbling is deeply theological. It's clear evidence of dissatisfaction for the plan of an almighty and sovereign God in our life. See, James isn't saying that grumbling is kind of bad. Just just try to avoid it. No, he's saying grumbling is sin. Do not grumble against one another. And why should we not? Because the judge is standing at the door. Right? Things change when someone's standing at the door. My kid's behavior changes when they know I'm standing there. They recognize it. He's saying you need to recognize this. Recognize that God is always present. And you'll be judged for your grumbling against one another. This is serious because grumbling ultimately is a seed of something terribly poisonous and toxic inside of you. Murder is bad, right? We'd all agree murder is bad. Well, murder is grumbling that has been nurtured and watered and fertilized and cultivated. That's what murder is made out of. It's made out of grumbling. And ultimately, friends, Christians, grumbling is anti-gospel. It's, it's simply your life for mine. That goes against the gospel, which is my life for yours. Grumbling is constantly saying, you do this for me. You satisfy me. You make my life easier. Your life for mine. And what a horrible way to live. But the gospel says, my life for yours. And how liberating that is. There's nothing more enslaving than to be looking at every situation and saying, what's in this for me? That's life-taking, not life-giving. And grumbling here, friends, is also the opposite of lamenting over a hard situation. Instead, grumbling here is destructive. The symptoms of impatience with people is cruel sarcasm or put-downs or cutting humor or sneering or gossip. 
And when you struggle with delayed gratification, you tend to, to float to those areas in how you deal with other people. And James is encouraging us pastorally not to do this. Instead, he says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate. Literally, he is full of compassion. Church, God is more than compassionate. He is filled with compassion. And what an awesome, incredible thought that is. The, the waiting in our lives is, is not there to block compassion and mercy. The waiting is a vehicle of compassion and mercy in your life. And what we need most in our lives is refinement. That's the story of Job. That's why he mentions Job. And at the end of the story of Job, he's a different man. And there's more to it. There's more in this story. And I would direct you to an early sermon that I preached in the, through the book of James. And I elaborate, the, elaborate that on, on that more. But I want to answer just a few more questions here as we end. First is, well, what, is what, what patience isn't? Patience isn't indifference. A patient person can be quite angry. There can be people who look very patient on the outside. But really on the inside, they're just lazy or lethargic. They look patient, but really they, they just don't give a rip. That isn't patience. That's the counterfeit of patience. A, pa a patient person can really be an angry at, at, a, at a situation, at a, maybe even at a person that's hurting someone else. In fact, I would say a patient Christian could be in the throes of a conflict to protect and defend those who are being hurt and maligned. Let me take this a little further because I would surmise that there are those who think they are patient and they look the part, but ultimately, deep down inside, they're just indifferent. You feel it's not any of your business. You don't want to get involved. You don't like drama or conflict, and so you stay out of it. But ultimately, you're lazy. You look patient, but really you're indifferent. You're apathetic. And I would say that indifference is the same as hate. I know that those are strong words, but when you look at the issues in our country for the last 100 years with racism, indifference seems to be the go-to place for white evangelicals. That's not patience. That's hate. It's your way of saying, I don't want to deal with this. It doesn't concern me, so I'm going to stay out of it. I, I didn't do it. I don't think that way, so I'm going to stay out of it. And that's not patience, friends. That's indifference. Another example, if you all want from Scripture, when God comes to Cain and says, what happened to your brother Abel? And we know that Cain murdered Abel. And Cain says, is that my problem? Am I my brother's keeper? You see, it's out of a murderous heart you hear that kind of indifference. He doesn't care about his brother at all. And so the reason some people can look patient on the outside and they don't get caught up in issues that are affecting people around them is that they say, I, I don't care, it doesn't concern me. And, and they shield themselves off from it, they cut themselves off. See, indifference is the counterfeit of patience. Indifference is fake patience. Not caring is, is not showing patience, it's showing selfishness. And we should care, we should care a lot. 
In fact, I was gently chastised by a brother a few weeks ago for my cavalier use of the words of the phrase, I don't care. I should care. I should care about people. I should care about their growth, about their safety. I should care about them as humans. So how do we develop patience? Well, simply, I think we need to remember God's patience with us. God is holy. He's just. He has every right in himself to judge us in our sin if it were not for Jesus Christ. And when God identified and described himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger, that's a a good way of expressing what it means that God is patient with us. And that statement comes in the context of God's um, viewpoint and, and ultimately of God's people and their apostasy and idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai with a golden calf. And God exercised patience bountifully with them. And when judgment is clearly deserved, God is seen over and again as patient. We see this in the story of Jonah and Nineveh and time and again with God's people walking through the wilderness. Micah says, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7. More examples are Hosea 11, 1 through 4, and Jeremiah 3, 19 through 20, and chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, and chapter 25, verses 3 through 4. God is a patient God, and every day we tax the patience of God. But he's faithful to his word and bears with us. See, patience has to do with how much you are able to carry. That's why when we lose it with people, we say things like, I've run out of patience. And it's true. We, we, in our sinful self, run out. But when God is patient with us, he's carrying the heavy load of our sin. One of the Hebrew words translated to forgive literally means to bear or carry. So when God is patient, when God forgives, it is only because God chooses to carry our sins himself, to bear the weight and cost of them on his shoulders. And that's precisely what Jesus did for us on the cross. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so when Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit will produce a fruit of patience in our lives, he's reminding us that the God of the Bible is the God who bore our sin who carried it himself in the person of his son, taking upon his own shoulders his righteous anger against all evil and wickedness. And that's the true cost of God's patience towards us. If you don't see how much you've taxed the patience of God, if the thought of what you have done to him and how you've tried his patience and how over the years he was holding you up and you were complaining and arguing with him and lashing out at him and others, perhaps this morning you can see freely and freshly and praise God for his long-suffering and patience with you. And friends, you can't exhort yourself into patience, though. You can't beat yourself into patience. 
you, you can't say, I, I should be patient. I'm going to beat myself into it. Some of you want to do that. You want, you want to man up and you want to fight your way through this, but it doesn't work that way. You can't beat yourself into patience. You can only repent yourself into patience. You have to see that God was slow to anger with you and that I'll make you slow to anger with others instead of grumbling and complaining with others. And then you need to sit at the foot of the cross and see Jesus. Jesus was truly an innocent sufferer, perfect, truly obedient in every way to the very end. And only Jesus loved the Lord with all of his heart, his soul, his strength, and his mind. And only did Jesus love his neighbor like himself. Jesus deserved the perfect life with no suffering. Instead, he was misunderstood. He was poor, rejected, betrayed, detained, and denied. He was arrested and trumped on trumped-up charges and dragged in front of a fake court, and he was tortured and killed. And through it all, Jesus was perfectly patient. He was the only innocent sufferer. And the forces of darkness, evil, and sin were coming down on him, and he stood his ground. He stood in the face of evil, our evil placed on him. He stood patiently, taking our shame, our guilt, our sin upon himself, because we could never do it ourselves. He obeyed. Even when he was in the garden praying, not my will, but thy be done, he was showing us again patience. He was honest. He stood his ground, standing for us. He didn't flinch. He didn't pull out. He didn't bail on obedience. He went to the cross and obeyed the Father. And why? Why did he do that? Why was he perfectly patient? See, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he died for our sins and took the punishment we deserve. That's the general. But specifically, Jesus, through his perfect patience, atoned for our impatience so that the Father can be endlessly patient with us, never giving up on us, letting us down or pulling back from us, even when we fail him. Jesus Christ was perfectly patient when God was abandoning him, and he did it for us so that we could be patient in situations for him. Friends, Jesus is worth trusting. When we have impatience, when we, in those moments, showing impatience, we have showing that we have lost trust in God. And when we grumble against one another in the midst of trials and suffering, we're showing that we believe that God is not in control. Friends, God sent Jesus to die for your impatience and your grumbling so that God can be incredibly patient and loving towards you. So turn from your selfishness and turn to God. Trust in him and do it today, friends. Charles Spurgeon said of this, he says, so being himself awaiting God, he loves awaiting people. He loves a man who can take the promise and say, I believe it. It may never be fulfilled to, to me in this life, but I do not want that it should be. I am perfectly willing that it should be, be fulfilled when God intends it to be. And listen, Christian, we know that the end is coming. Knowing the end makes everything more bearable. Even though we don't know the end of this state in place order that's given to us here in Washington, 
we do know that Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. So I want to encourage you to pray. Pray for wisdom for our leaders. Pray for our governor, Jay Inslee, whether you like him or not. That's your job, Christian. Pray for those who are leading us. And, and, and look to be patient as you look to God. Because we know the one who holds everything together. It's, it's not us. It's not our government. It's God. And so trust him, friends. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we currently live in the already and not yet. And I recognize, Father, that some of your children are in the throes of suffering. And I pray you continue to give them grace. Father, thank you that we can come to you with our hearts and our hurts and our pains, knowing that you care. We ask, Father, that you would help us to be patient people, help us to trust in you. May we be known as people who love you and pray for those who have authority over us. May we be known as people who, who seek to be long-suffering with others. Help us to, to follow you in all things. Help us to believe again this morning that you are more than compassionate. You are filled with compassion. And we see this clearly when we see you on the cross dying for our sins. We thank you for redeeming us. And Father, help us to live for you this week, patiently enduring situations, patiently enduring those that we live with, showing love and care and concern and cultivating this fruit. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.